Perhaps you remember this nursery rhyme from your childhood memories. There was a crooked man, and he walked a crooked mile. He found a crooked sixpence upon a crooked stile. So he bought a crooked cat that caught a crooked mouse, and they all lived together in the little crooked house. Although the exact origin of that nursery rhyme is unknown, it was known to be first published in a collection of nursery rhymes in 1860, 1840. Among the various interpretations of this nursery rhyme, one is that of a dishonest person getting what they deserve. In other words, a morally crooked person deserving the consequences of living a morally crooked life. And as we continue our series on the earthly life of the ministry of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is portrayed in Luke's gospel, today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 13, verses 10 through 17. Here is the account of Jesus healing a woman on the Sabbath, a crooked woman, not morally crooked as such, but physically crooked, one who is stooped over and unable to stand up straight. So let's look at this passage together, Luke 13, verses 10 through 17. And he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath, and there was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. And when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. But the synagogue official, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, There are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water him? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 long years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? And as he said this, all his opponents were being humiliated and the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. In this passage today, we're going to see three things. First, we're going to see Jesus continuing to affirm his true identity as the long-promised, long-awaited Messiah of the Jewish people, along with the coming of the kingdom of God and what implication that has for each one of us. And secondly, we're going to see Jesus illustrate through the physical condition of this crippled woman the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel and their need for national repentance 
along with our own need for repentance as well. Thirdly, we're going to see Jesus expose the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious leaders and how we too can be guilty of such hypocrisy ourselves. So let's walk through this passage together, beginning in verse 10. It says he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. The synagogues had their beginnings in the Babylonian captivity, uh, since without the temple in Jerusalem, the exiled Jews had no place to make their sacrificial offerings. The synagogue became places of instruction where uh, the books of the law were read and where prayers could be offered up to God. They became the center of Jewish community and social life, as many are as well today. And this is Luke's last mention of Jesus teaching in one of the synagogues. He had earlier taught in the northern area of Galilee and the southern area of Judea, as we read in Luke chapter 4. And now we find him in the area of Perea, teaching in one of the synagogues in that area east of the Jordan River. And we're reminded of the opposition that Jesus was up against when we refer back to a similar event concerning the Sabbath in Luke chapter 6 and verse 7, where we read the scribes and the Pharisees were watching him closely to see if he healed on the Sabbath so that they might find reason to accuse him. No doubt there were scribes and Pharisees in the audience that day listening to Jesus' teaching, just waiting for the opportunity to accuse him. The rejection of Jesus on the part of the nation of Israel would later in Luke's gospel be evidenced in his lament for his own people, where we read him lamenting, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. And hence, in Luke 19, we see Jesus' prophetic judgment on the nation of Israel for their rejection of him, where it says that he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city, and he wept over it, saying, if you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. The Jewish nation is rejecting their long-promised long-awaited Messiah in Jesus Christ. Continuing in verse 8, we read, There was a woman who for 18 years had had a sickness caused by a spirit, and she was bent double and could not straighten up at all. 
The text indicates that this woman there in the synagogue was bent over double, that she was unable to stand erect. And keep in mind that this is Dr. Luke who is writing these words, albeit under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But he's a physician, and he's providing a descriptive medical analysis of this woman's physical condition. Perhaps her condition was was due to some form of, of spinal arthritis or osteoporosis. We don't know because the text doesn't say. But what the text does say is that she's had this infirmity for 18 years and that this woman's condition is described as being a sickness or that she is in a sickly condition for this woman by doing or caused by a spirit. Through this crippled woman, not only would Jesus point out to the nation of Israel their condition before God, but he would demonstrate the same compassion for this woman by doing for her what he could do for them. And the same is true for each one of us here today. We're all broken people living in a broken world. And from the beginning, it was never intended to be like this. And yet, as we know in the creation account, man makes his own decision to go his own way in rejecting God's way. And the entire creation has been suffering the consequences ever since. Because of this, you and I are broken in every aspect of our being, physically, spiritually, and emotionally. This is illustrated on the screen. Kathy and I recently made a trip to Boston, and this was taken in the King's Chapel there in Boston, which is founded in 1686, in the first Anglican church in colonial New England. And pictured is the pulpit with the banister leading up to the pulpit. Of particular note are the twist balusters or spindles. The balusters are all fluted in a right-to-left downward pattern, with the exception of one large baluster at the top center of the picture. Note that this one baluster is fluted in the opposite direction from all the left, in a left-to-right downward pattern. It is said that the flaw was an intentional design imperfection to illustrate that we are all flawed and broken by sin. None of us comes before God without flaws. And at the same time that Jesus is demonstrating for all to see what he will eventually do in the future, fixing all that is broken by the effect of sin, he will make all things right, putting all things back the way they were originally intended to be. 
especially you and me. The woman's physical condition is described as being bent double and not being able to straighten up at all. In her condition, she was obviously suffering severe physical limitations. But take note of what is said concerning this woman. It says for 18 years she had had a sickness caused by a spirit. Now what does Luke mean when he refers to her condition as being caused by a spirit? And note the connection that Jesus makes with Satan in verse 16 where he refers to this woman whom Satan has bound for 18 long years. Does this mean that this woman was possessed by a demon? We cannot say for sure whether or not this woman was demon-possessed because we cannot say for sure whether or not this woman was a believer. Dr. Robert Leitner of Dallas Theological Seminary in his book titled Angels, Satan, and Demons, it's a good read, uh, states, when the term spirits is used in the New Testament without any defining or modifying words, it almost always refers to angels or demons, not to humans. You see, the spirit world is just as real as the physical world. When Jesus accused, was accused of casting out demons by Satan, he replied in Luke 11, verse 17, "...any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself fails." So it stands to reason that a believer cannot be demon-possessed. You cannot have two masters living in the same house. Otherwise, it is divided against itself. It will fall. However, believers can be demon-influenced or demon-attacked. Perhaps that is what has happened in the case of this woman. But reading on in verse 12, we see that when Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your sickness. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again and began glorifying God. Notice that the text says that Jesus saw her. It's in the midst of his teaching. He probably interrupted himself. You see, Jesus is not bound by the schedule, is he? But it says that he saw her. Jesus sees this woman there in the synagogue. And not only does he see her, but he sees her physical condition, that she is bent double and that she cannot stand up straight. The text also says not only that Jesus saw her, but that he called her to him. He called her over. And Jesus not only sees this woman in her physical brokenness, but he calls her to himself. He calls her to respond by coming to him 
And so she does. Jesus says to her, woman, you are freed from your sickness. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that this woman was actually freed from her sickness? Well, because the text goes on to state that as he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made erect again. It was visible for all to see within that synagogue that she had actually been freed from her sickness. And after 18 long years, she was finally standing erect again. You know, one of the saddest times for our family occurred in November 2015. It was in the fifth month of pregnancy with their second child that our daughter and son-in-law learned of a serious prenatal condition that seriously jeopardized the survival of the baby following delivery. And over the remaining four months, our family prayed like uh, we've never prayed before. And following the birth of our grandson there in San Diego, our family spent the next six days at the hospital where our grandson was being cared for in the neonatal intensive care unit. On the fourth day, as we made our way to the hospital, we found ourselves in traffic behind a large dump truck. And we happened to notice a scripture reference on the tailgate, First Chronicles 29, verses 11 through 14. Referencing the passage on her cell phone, my wife Kathy read aloud the following. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Indeed, everything that is in the heavens and the earth, yours is the dominion, O Lord. And you exalt yourself as head over all. Both riches and honor come from you. And you rule over all, and in your hand is power and might. And it lies in your hand to make great and to strengthen everyone. Now, therefore, our God, we thank you and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to offer as generously as this? For all things come from you and from your hand we have given you. Who would have ever thought of finding encouragement on the back of a dump truck at a time like that, or at any other given time for that matter? And yet we did. And you know, some people would say, what a coincidence. And yet we knew in our heart of hearts, it was one of those quiet ways in which the Lord was reminding us I see you. I'm on this. And even though three days later we would eventually lose our grandson, nonetheless, we found great encouragement in the, great, in the midst of our sadness just knowing that the Lord saw us, that he was having compassion on us in the midst of such great sorrow. In the same way that Jesus saw this woman in her brokenness and had compassion on her, 
and called her to himself to release her from the infirmity that was crippling her. The same is true for you and for me. Jesus sees each one of us in our brokenness. He has compassion on us. And he calls for each one of us to come to him, to release us from the spiritual infirmities that cripple us. Reading on in verse 14, it says, But the synagogue official, indignant, because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, began saying to the crowd in response, there are six days in which work should be done. So come during them and get healed, and not on the Sabbath day. Now what is the Sabbath day? Well, we recall from the creation account that God created in every, everything in six days and rested on the seventh day. We read in Genesis 2, by the seventh day, God completed his work, which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work when he had created and made. It's not as if God was worn out. It's that he ceased from all of his work. The nation of Israel through Moses was commanded in Exodus 20 in verse 8, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And they were to cease from their work as well. In Mark 2, 27, Jesus clarified the purpose of the Sabbath, stating that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The purpose of the Sabbath was for the benefit of the Jewish people. And Jesus further clarified in Luke 6, verse 5, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus is saying that He is our Sabbath, and we are to find our rest in Him. We're not to seek our rest in just one day of the week, we're to find our rest in Jesus Christ. After all, didn't he say in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I, I will give you rest. He is our Sabbath, and we are to find our rest in him. It was the rabbinic law that the Jewish religious leaders added to clarify what could or could not be done on the Sabbath. And yet there was allowance within their own rabbinic law for rendering aid where it was needed on the Sabbath to an animal or even to a person. And therefore this synagogue official is indignant with Jesus for doing something that his own rabbinic law makes allowance for. And notice that the synagogue official refrains from rebuking Jesus directly, nor does he rebuke the woman that was healed directly. Instead, he berates the crowd. 
It's as if he's thinking he's going to avoid a one-on-one confrontation with Jesus. I mean, this guy uses all of the tactics of a legalist. Dr. Charles Swindoll, in his book, The Grace Awakening, he identifies three tools that are used by the legalist. Doctrinal heresy, ecclesiastical harassment, and personal hypocrisy. And this has to be the hypocrisy of all hypocrisies. This synagogue official employs doctrinal heresy by misrepresenting his own rabbinical teaching by inferring that some Sabbath heresy has been committed by Jesus. He resorts to ecclesiastical harassment or spiritual abuse by publicly, indirectly rebuking Jesus and the woman who was, had been healed along with those in the crowd who were likewise followers of Jesus. And this one's my favorite. The synagogue official demonstrates his own personal hypocrisy. By his own indignant response, he implicitly admits that Jesus has in fact healed this woman. He doesn't deny the reality of what has just taken place before everyone there. There's no denying that what has just taken place. So he just ignorantly says to the crowd, Hey, if you want to get healed, don't come on the Sabbath. We're not open for that. We don't do that kind of stuff on the Sabbath. We're open other six days of the week for that kind of stuff. This is the hypocrisy of hypocrisy. And so it is that Jesus then responds in verse 15. It says, The Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the stall and lead him away to water? And this woman, a daughter of Abraham as she is, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, should she not have been released from this bond on the Sabbath day? You know, Jesus answers the synagogue official. I mean, he's calling him out in front of the crowd. Jesus labels him and others like him calling them hypocrites. And this is one of Jesus' strongest indictments of the hypocrisy of the Jewish religious leaders. You may recall several weeks ago when Roger addressed the issue of hypocrisy earlier in the book of Luke, defining this theatrical term as literally meaning to be two-faced, pretending to be someone that you're not. You know, hypocrisy is a lie against yourself. You know, you think you're deceiving others, and you think that you're even deceiving God, but in reality, you're only deceiving yourself. You're not the person that you make yourself out to be. You're a fraud. That's the hypocrisy of hypocrisy. And ultimately, you're deceiving no one but yourself. This is a defining moment 
in Jesus' earthly ministry. Clarifying his mission and purpose for why he came. And he would clearly state that later in Luke where he says, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. This is Jesus' primary mission, to seek and to save the lost. That includes you and that includes me. And Jesus makes his argument referring to their own rabbinic law which makes allowance for rendering aid where it's needed on the Sabbath. His argument is that if it's okay on the Sabbath to release a beast of burden from being bound to be able to water that animal in need, then doesn't it stand to reason that it's okay to do the same for this woman? Jesus refers to the woman as a daughter of Abraham, indicating that as a woman, she too is entitled to the covenant promise and blessing afforded any man throughout the nation of Israel. You know, Jesus has done more for the value and worth of women than any other person who's ever walked the face of this earth. He has rightly shown them the dignity that they deserve as fellow image bearers of God being created in God's image. Now, by referring to this woman as a daughter of Abraham, Luke may either have been merely identifying her as a Jewish woman, or he may have been implying that she was indeed a woman of faith. Note her response to Jesus healing her at the end of verse 13, where it said that she was made erect and began glorifying God. Hers is the proper response. And remember, too, that this woman has suffered for 18 years with her physical infirmity. And yet, here she is in the synagogue. You know, had she been disappointed all those years? Probably. Had she given up? It doesn't appear so. In other words, that she's probably been coming to the synagogue for over 18 years. And now we see the response of all gathered there in the synagogue that day. Where it says in verse 17, all his opponents were being humiliated. And the entire crowd was rejoicing over all the glorious things being done by him. Note the humiliation of those who opposed Jesus. He had shut down their argument. He had exposed their hypocrisy. Why was the remainder of the crowd rejoicing? They were rejoicing over the three things that I said earlier that we would observe in this passage. They were rejoicing because they had just witnessed the miracle of Jesus healing this woman from her physical infirmity further revealing his true identity and that the kingdom of God was at hand. 
They were rejoicing because they had just witnessed what Jesus had done for this woman physically that he could likewise do for them spiritually as well. And they were rejoicing because Jesus had just exposed the narrow-minded hypocrisy, not only of the synagogue official, but of the entire legalistic mindset of the religious fundamentalists of their day. So what about you? Perhaps you're like this woman, and you're suffering some physical infirmity that in some ways is limiting you. It's crippling you. Like this woman, know that Jesus sees you in your brokenness. He isn't ignoring you. He hasn't forgotten you. In this life, he may or he may not heal you physically, but he does offer to heal you spiritually based on what he has already done for you by dying on a cross and paying the penalty for your sins that you could not pay for yourself. And like this woman, know that Jesus not only sees you, but that Jesus is calling you. He's calling you to come by faith, believing in what he has already done for you. He's calling you because he wants relationship with you. And he wants you to respond to him. You know, all of us respond to the calling of Jesus on our lives. We either come to him or we reject him. There's no in-between. And like this woman, Jesus wants rest for you. Rest from what emotionally bounds you. He wants you to find your rest in him, regardless of your circumstances. Jesus is your Sabbath. Jesus is your rest. Or perhaps you're like the synagogue official. Like the synagogue official, though he may have had the best of intentions, nonetheless, his intentions were misguided. You can be sincerely right about the wrong things, or you can be sincerely wrong about the right things. Either way, you're still wrong. You want to be sure that you're right about the right things, especially when it comes to your eternal destiny. Because if you're wrong on that, you're dead wrong. Like the synagogue official, the reality of Jesus' identity stood right there before him. And yet he denied that reality. And you can deny the reality of Jesus' identity all you want, but that doesn't change the reality of who he really is. Truth isn't dependent on what you and I believe. What you and I believe doesn't change 
truth. Truth will always be truth, whether you believe it or not. Pray with me. Father, we are so grateful for our Savior and the fact that no matter what we're dealing with in our brokenness, in our lives, Father, that you see us, that you call us to you, and that you have compassion on us. And I pray, Father, for each one of us here today that we would find our rest, our Sabbath rest, in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. Father, we thank you in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.